Hello and welcome to this next lesson in our basics series. Uh, thankful that you have continued to watch each of these videos as you've come to be more familiar with the Christian walk, the Christian life, and what it's all about. Now in the last lesson, Buddy talked about following Jesus. And you may be thinking, wow, that's a lot. How am I ever going to do this? Well, good news, you have help. And that's what this lesson is all about. You have even the Holy Helper, the Spirit of God, God's Holy Spirit living within you, who is going to help you to follow Jesus. So as we begin, let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And I want us to read verses 1 through 13. The Bible says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. In order that, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who walk according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin... The Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Lord God, as we look to your scriptures, as we contemplate the Holy Spirit, we pray that we would see clearly why you have given us your spirit and how the Holy Spirit helps us to live life with you. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. Now there is no one passage or one book of the Bible that we can turn to that outlines the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. We can't turn to the book of the Holy Spirit that has a specific outline detailing everything about the Holy Spirit. But what we can do is we can build a doctrine concerning the Holy Spirit from biblical passages. Now, just some basic theology 101. We believe in one God. 
And yet, we believe that there are three persons who make up the Godhead or the Trinity. This is the arithmetic of heaven, where one plus one plus one does not equal three, but rather one plus one plus one equals one. It is not unlike, I've heard it illustrated this way, the marriage relationship, where we are told in the Bible that when a, a husband and a wife are married, the two become one flesh. The two persons make up now the one marriage relationship. And so when we talk about the, the, the Godhead, we're talking about three who's of the one what. The three who's are the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the one what is God, or the Godhead, or Trinity. There are three persons in this one mutual relationship of being God. Now, historically, Christians in various ages have affirmed the arithmetic of heaven, shall we call it. Early in church history, there were many people who were putting forward various ideas and, and concepts about the deity of uh, the Son, Jesus, and the deity of the Holy Spirit. Now, not all of those ideas were good ideas. In fact, uh, one of the strange ideas that was being floated around in the early church was that there is a tiered relationship within the Godhead. That is to say, the Father is greater than the Son, who is greater than the Spirit. And that is not what you find in the Bible. But there were people who believed that. And so what happened was the church called councils and creeds, statements of what the church has always believed, were put forward and they produced in very concise language the beliefs of the faithful. For example, in order to combat the idea that the Holy Spirit was less than God, in 451 at what is called the Council of Chalcedon, they affirmed the following creed. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and Giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. Now notice, the church believed, rightly so, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all to be worshipped and glorified. Since God alone is to be worshipped, then that must mean that the Holy Spirit is God. And that's exactly right. They were merely formulated, formulating, and again, concise language, or, or suitcase language, what they believed the Scriptures taught. And by suitcase language, I mean, of course, suppose you were to go on a trip, what would you do? You'd pack a suitcase and you'd put all of your clothing and maybe your toiletry bag and maybe a book or something that you were going to read. Whatever you needed for that trip, you'd put in the suitcase and then you can take that suitcase with you. And then once you got to your destination, you can open that suitcase and unpack it. And that's what these Christians were doing in the early church as they were putting together in suitcase language that they could then unpack from the Scriptures what they believed in, in very concise language. But these foundational concepts are critical for keeping the Holy Spirit in the proper perspective. It's vital even for us today. The Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force or principle. The Holy Spirit is not an it, in other words. The Holy Spirit is a He. He is a person. He can be grieved. And He is to be worshipped, as we've already stated. Now, 
when you become a Christian, when you became a Christian, God gave you the Holy Spirit. You received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came and He now lives in you. So why do you need the Holy Spirit? And what's He doing now that He has taken up residence in you? Great question. God the Holy Spirit is working alongside God the Father and God the Son in order to make our lives pleasing to God. You see, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all working in perfect concert and harmony with one another in order to bring about not just our salvation, but also our sanctification so that we can live life with God. And they're all working together as well in order to bring us to glory. To bring us to heaven. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all, are all working together for that goal. Now, let's back up. And if you have your Bible there, open to Romans 8. Keep your finger there. We're going to come back to it. And let's take a peek at John chapter 14. Because it is in John chapter 14 where we read that Jesus promises the Holy Spirit. This, chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, these are all teaching. This is all teaching from Jesus on the night when He is betrayed. And He's teaching His disciples in chapter 17, He's praying. And in the heart of His teaching to His disciples, kind of His last lecture, as it were, before He is crucified, in John 14, verses 16 and 17, he makes a promise. He says, and I will ask the Father. So here's the Son saying, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. Notice, Jesus says, He's promising that He would send the Holy Spirit to be with His disciples forever. And it's uh, the Holy Spirit, He's another helper. Another helper that indicates we, we need help. Why else would Jesus send a helper except we need the help? We live in a fallen world. We ourselves are flawed. We do battle against the world, the flesh, the devil. We're surrounded by temptations to sin and even sin itself. We need help. We are frail children of dust and feeble as frail. We are weak due to the flesh. We need help. And Jesus says, I'm going to send you another. Another who is like me. That's the idea there of the term another. Just as Jesus helps us, He says, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And He's going to be another helper. Yes, we need help. And so Jesus says, help is on the way. Help is yours if you are My disciple. And not only do you have another helper, but He's with you always. Did you notice that at the end of verse 16? To be with you forever. This helper, the Holy Helper, the Spirit of God, will be with us forever. That shows the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not confined to the first century. The presence of the Holy Spirit was not exclusive to just the first century or just to the first century church or just to the disciples. This is a promise that the work of the Holy Spirit will continue. That the presence 
of the Holy Spirit abides in this world in believers, in the Lord's church. Now, it's interesting that the word spirit is the same word that can be translated as breath or wind, but specifically breath. You see, the Lord's church is compared in Scripture to a body. And in order to have life, the body needs breath. Well, Jesus says, I will send the Spirit. I'll send the breath of God to enliven my church. And indeed, that's what the Holy Spirit does. You see, just as our body is dead without the animating presence of spirit, soul, so the body of Christ without the spirit of Christ is dead. And so we need the Holy Spirit, and He is. We have the promise, He's with us forever. And He abides, He dwells with you. He will be in you, Jesus says there in verse 17. That means the Holy Spirit has taken up residence. He comes and makes His home in us. He comes and He lives in us. It's no wonder that the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 22, he talks about how God has given us His Spirit in our hearts. This is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit which is promised to every Christian. Everyone who repents of their sins, everyone who is baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, they receive the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit is given to them. This is Peter in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. Yes, Jesus promised and then delivered on that promise. We'll get to Romans 8 in just a moment, but one more foundational passage is in the book of Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Here we read about the Holy Spirit as a seal and as a guarantee in verses 13 and 14 of Ephesians chapter 1. The Bible says, In Him, that's in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Notice, Paul here talks about hearing the gospel. He talks about believing in Christ. And so all who hear the gospel and all who put their faith in Christ and through obedience have God, the Holy Spirit, living in them, well, they have the promise of a home with God. You see, we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, says Paul. These Christians in Ephesus, they had heard the Word, they would believed in Christ, and they were sealed. This is the normative conversion experience for every Christian. This is how you come to be a Christian. Everyone in the first century was doing it. And anyone in the 21st century uh, who would be a Christian, must do it as well. The sealing, very interesting, that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Again, we remember, as I just mentioned, Acts 2.38, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit when we're baptized, and that seems to be the moment when we're sealed. And in fact, the way this is written would agree with that. But the whole complex of salvation, as it were, that culminates in baptism, that's when we are sealed with 
the Holy Spirit at baptism. You see, when a person hears and obeys the Gospel, when you did that even, God gives that person, has given even you, some of Himself, as it were. Indeed, all of Himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. And this shows us that He will give us our inheritance. When you think about it, an inheritance. Even heaven with Him forever. Man, what a deal. What a deal. One writer put it this way, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee that someday we will enter into the full possession of the bliss and the blessedness of God. That's what it means to be sealed with the Holy Spirit. But also the Holy Spirit is the guarantee. This is security deposit language. It is a commercial term used in business concerning money that would act as a down payment or a deposit. Maybe your translation says that. When you you go to purchase a car or you want to move in and, and rent someplace, they'll usually ask for a security deposit or a down payment on something, yes? That's the idea here. And what it points to is there's something bigger in store. Now that's what it means here, that the guarantee is just a foretaste of glory divine. That it is the promise of a full and future bliss that will be ours in the presence of God. That's the Holy Spirit for Christians. A guarantee. A security deposit. A down payment. God is faithful. And He will complete that transaction. Our inheritance is typically equated with heaven. I think that's right. But even now, there's renewal taking place. There is regeneration of the soul that is ongoing. Though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed, Paul says in 2 Corinthians. These are the beginnings of heaven, as it were. And again, it will give way to even more. So we have some of it now, but there's a whole lot more in store. More to come. More is in store for the Christians. And the presence of the Holy Spirit is an indicator of that. That's the first fruits of what is to come. Until we acquire possession of it, is the way Paul says it there. Now, I do want to mention one more thing, and we can read right past the phrase, but it's a key phrase concerning what God is up to in everything. There at the end of verse 14, it is to the praise of His glory. Why is God doing this? It is the self-glorifying work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the Father giving to the Son His people. The Son redeeming His people. And then the Holy Spirit applying that work to the people of God. And it's all to the glory of God. See, that's what's going on with your life and mine as we seek to live the Christian life, is God is being glorified as He molds us, shapes us, and changes us more and more to look like Christ. It is to His glory. Now, let's go back to Romans 8. And let's answer that question that we started with. 
Why do we need the Holy Spirit? Now, we've been looking at a number of reasons why we need the Holy Spirit, uh, the guarantee, the inheritance, and all that. But now let's get specific as it pertains to our life in the here and the now. Why do we need the Holy Spirit? And I believe Romans 8 gives us a definite answer to that question. Uh, there is no question whatsoever that we need the Holy Spirit because it is impossible to live a God-pleasing life without the Holy Spirit. I guess we could state it positively. We need the Holy Spirit in order to make it possible that we can live lives that are pleasing to God. He does. He makes it possible. Let's go back through just a few of these verses in particular. And I want us to notice, starting in verse 8, where Paul writes that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Cannot please God. Those who are in the flesh are unable to please God. Now, hopefully one thing that came out and, and really popped, and if it didn't, let me point it out to you, as we read through this text earlier, is there are only two kinds of people in this world. There are those who are in the flesh, and there are those who are in the Spirit. Those who are in the Spirit are Christians, even the Christians at Rome, to whom Paul is writing to, but it applies for all Christians. They are the ones who are in the Spirit. And that would mean that everyone who is not a Christian is therefore in the flesh. There's only two. There's not a, a middle third group. I didn't see one in here, right? I didn't read about those who are in the uh, black bar, right? Whatever. The, I mean, I, there's not even language for it, right? Those who are in the black bar, they kind of do something else, right? There's no third group here. There's only in the flesh or in the spirit. And specifically, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, why is that? Well, it's because, verse 5, the mind of those who are in the flesh is flesh-focused. He says in verse 5, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. You see, our mind, powerful thing, and it's from our mind that our actions come. And Paul is saying that a mind set on the flesh is going to produce fleshly actions. And those fleshly actions are not the kind of actions that God desires and requires of His people. Those fleshly actions are actually acts of disobedience and rebellion to God. However, a mind that is set on the Spirit will produce spiritual actions, even actions that are pleasing to God. And so for Paul to say that those who are in the flesh cannot please God, you see the starting point is all wrong. And that's why the mind will produce these fleshly actions that are ultimately not pleasing to God. So the mind is fleshly focused. He goes on in verse 6 to say that to set the mind on the flesh is death. And so that means that the, the, the mind is flesh focused. And so our minds then are set on death so long as we're in the flesh. And in fact, he says there in verse 7 that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God. Our minds, our thinking, are all hostile toward God. 
They're opposed to the things of God. And in fact, they refuse to submit to God's law. He says that there. For, uh, for it, the mind that is sent on the flesh, does not submit to God's law. And in fact, he goes on and he says, because it can't. It's unable to submit to God's law in the flesh. And I suppose we should make sure we understand what Paul is meaning here by talking about flesh. When we think about flesh, we tend to think about this, right? The flesh and blood. And it's true that that word flesh can mean that. However, that's not the way Paul is using it here. And in fact, often when he wants to make the contrast between this flesh and blood and flesh, as he's talking about it here, he'll instead defer to the term body to talk about the flesh and the blood. But the flesh, as Paul is using it in Romans, has to do with this principle that is within every single person that is opposed to and hostile to God. It is this anti-God principle in every single person that Paul is talking about when he's talking about the flesh here and the mind that's set on the flesh and all the fleshly actions. And There's nothing in the flesh that is pleasing to God. In fact, it's outright hostile toward God. It refuses to submit to God's law. Indeed, as he says, it cannot. And so you see the contrast here. That on opposite ends of this battle are the flesh and the Spirit. And by Spirit, he means the Holy Spirit. Capital S, Spirit, who lives in every Christian. And hopefully you see, there is no agreement between the flesh and the Spirit. There's no concord between the flesh and the Spirit. In another book that's written by the Apostle Paul, the book of Galatians, there Paul will talk about how there are desires that are in the flesh, that the, the flesh produces. And those desires are antagonistic to the desires that the Holy Spirit produces. And so you see the conflict that the, the flesh and the Spirit are at war with one another, and that war even takes place in the Christian. Because even though we now seek to live life in the Spirit, it doesn't mean that the flesh has been done away with. That's not going to happen until we get to glory in heaven. In the meantime, the battle continues. Why we are called to put to death the deeds of the body, uh, later on in verse 13. So in the flesh, this is a, a very important concept for understanding what Paul is saying here. Why those in the flesh cannot please God. But once we're in the Spirit, the opposite is true. Those who are in the Spirit are now able to please God. And in fact, they do. You do. As you live life in the Spirit. You not only have new desires being produced by the Spirit and new affections being produced by the Spirit, but it's the Spirit who is now helping you to will those desires into action. And, and the Spirit is helping you to do those God-pleasing actions in your life. That's what Paul is talking about here, is now we are capable, we are now able to do the things we couldn't do before. Why? Because the Spirit within us. We're now capable of serving God. We're now capable 
of loving Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We are now capable of loving our neighbor as ourselves. We are now capable of keeping the Word of God. We are now capable of glorifying God in our bodies. Whereas before, when we were only in the flesh, we couldn't. Because again, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now we can. But it's again, only because of the Spirit. See, God has given us His grace. His immeasurable grace. And as a result of that, He has given us a new heart. Taken out our old heart of stone and given us a new heart. And as Christians, He's given us His Spirit. The Holy Spirit. So, there's no excuse now. There's no excuse for us not living the way that God would have us to live. No excuse for not following Jesus as we saw in the previous lesson. When it comes to living the way that is pleasing to God and brings praise to Him and honors Him and glorifies Him, there's no excuse. We have God the Holy Spirit who is helping us to do this. And so this is a major reason as to why God gives us the Holy Spirit. As we keep going further into verse 9, Paul has talked about back in verse 1 about how there's no condemnation. The, uh, the law of the Spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And he works out a bit further this idea of the freedom that the Spirit brings us, the deliverance that we have in the here and the now. You see, freedom and deliverance, that's part of the work of the Spirit within us. So in verse 9, we see that the Spirit of God dwells in you. The Spirit lives in you. We've been talking about that. And, and now Paul states it outright. That since the Spirit of God now lives in you, you're no longer of the flesh. Again, that doesn't mean the flesh goes away. It's still there. Still tempting you. Still trying to get you to gratify the unholy desires. And unfortunately, you know just as I do. And more often than we like to admit, we do that. Oh, but the Holy Spirit is there to help us. And if we will listen to the promptings of the Spirit of God, if we will put to death the deeds of the body, if we will uh, put to death by the Spirit within us, we'll have life. You see, the flesh and the Spirit, again, they're opposed to one another. The flesh does not want what the Spirit wants. The Spirit does not want what the flesh wants. The desires that the Holy Spirit produces within us are holy. The desires that the flesh produces within us, those are unholy. And so what do you want? We need to want, and Paul is adamant here, that if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you're not Christ's. You're not a Christian. But let me ask, does the Spirit of God live within you? Of course He does. If, you're, if you've been obedient to the Gospel, we know that. We have the promise in Scripture that we receive the Holy Spirit from God when we obey the Gospel. You have the Holy Spirit within you. Don't say no. Of course you do. 
And so to be a Christian, we must have the Holy Spirit. And so we, well, we need to be led by the Spirit of God. Verse 14 talks about that. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And those new desires, and those new affections, we can't ignore those. We shouldn't ignore those. Those are good things. And so the Spirit is given to us in order to free us from those bad desires of the flesh. And so that's why Paul can say in verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh. You're in the Spirit. That's the new normal for the Christian. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Now he goes on in verse 10. He says, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. The Spirit is life. Now we know from earlier in Romans, the wages of sin is death. Back in 6 and verse 23, sin brings death. The body is dead. It's subject to death because of sin. The, the flesh, it's a whole culture of death. And listen, there are many today, perhaps even some of your friends, your family, many today live in the flesh. But it's a death culture. And you know, that's where every last one of us came from. Every last Christian was dead because of our trespasses and sins. But it is God who has made all the difference in Christ. Christ is in you, Paul says. And since Christ is in you, you have the presence of the Holy Spirit. We've been justified through Christ. And therefore, we have life through the Holy Spirit. Literally, what Paul writes there is, Spirit, life through righteousness. So it's a very emphatic statement. The Spirit is in us because of righteousness. And there's life through that righteousness in the Spirit. And so the Spirit, he's, the design here is to deliver us from death. Just back earlier in chapter 7 and verse 24, Paul there had said, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Verse 25 gives the answer, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Spirit is life, and He gives us new life. That's what verse 11 is about. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Give life to our mortal bodies. Of course, what is needed for that resurrection is the presence of the Holy Spirit within us. You see, all those years ago when I read from that uh, creed from the Council of Chalcedon, they understood the Holy Spirit is the Lord and giver of life. And so the Spirit, that's exactly what He does. Without the Spirit, we're still dead. Jesus Himself said, because I live, you also will live. And while this certainly anticipates when we will be raised one day, the resurrection of the dead, Paul will talk about that, and the future glory that will be ours later on in chapter 8 of Romans, but well, it certainly points to that even in the here and now. Again, there is therefore now 
Now, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that is because, again, of what the Spirit is doing at work within us. The Spirit is giving life to us. Even new life. So as we serve God, we serve out of the life that the Spirit of God gives us. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Now we are alive. The Spirit is at work to sanctify us. And that's a big Bible word for purifying us. Purifying our lives. Setting us apart more and more for service to God. We've been brought from death to life. Paul said that back in chapter 6 when he was talking about baptism. That's what happens. We were dead, buried with Him in baptism, raised now to live new life. Life even in the Spirit. And so the Spirit, He delivers us so that we can have real, purposeful life. So then, brothers, we are debtors. The idea there of debt means uh, moral obligation. There's weight to this. But we're debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. No, we, we don't owe the flesh anything now. All the flesh ever gave us was death. No, now we are debtors to God. You see, he goes on, he says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. There's the culture of death, the, the death cult of the flesh. No, and we've, we've abandoned that. And thanks be to God that He took that death. Now we can have life. And so Paul says, if by the Spirit... But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So you hear the call that's given to us. Here is what we owe God in light of what He has done for us in Christ Jesus. We owe it to God to put to death, to mortify. I don't really use that term, but it's a good term. To put to death the deeds of the body. What does that look like? Well, there are a number of ways in which it can manifest itself. If you were a thief before coming to Christ, it means you abandon that lifestyle, and now you're going to work in order that you might have something to share with people who have needs. Before Christ, every other word out of your mouth was a profanity? You talked like a sailor? Now you're going to stop using that kind of language. And now you're going to speak only those words that are going to edify people and bring them grace. And give grace to those who hear. If before coming to Christ, you had an anger problem, well, now you're going to submit your emotions and your attitudes to God in order that He might enable you to handle your anger in a God-glorifying way. It doesn't mean that now that you're a Christian, you never get angry about stuff. It means, number one, you get angry about the right things. And number two, you handle your business. And you do that before the sun goes down. The list can go on and on. I, I encourage you, go read Ephesians chapter 4, especially the latter part of chapter 4. That's kind of what I've been pulling on from memory as we've been going here. But one after another after another, Paul in that epistle is giving Christians 
uh, example after example of what new life in Christ looks like and what it sounds like. And it is. It's very tangible um, in, in, what, in the work that the Spirit is doing within each Christian. In other words, the rubber really does meet the road. It's not just, well, I'm a Christian now, so I got my ticket punched, all the income free, I'm going to do whatever I want now. No, that's actually what you were doing beforehand, minus the ticket punch, right? You are doing whatever you wanted. Now, as a Christian, with the Holy Spirit living within you, you are doing the things and pursuing the things that God would have you to do. Is it a perfect walk? No. I mentioned that earlier just in passing. We still fall short. The, the desires of the flesh are still competing with the desires of the Spirit. And we will do and give in to the strongest desire in the moment. And, and sometimes in the moment, the desire of the Spirit wins out. And that's a good thing. And, and we ought to praise God for those victories. That in the moment of temptation, we were able to identify the way of escape. But if in the moment, flesh is powerful. And our spirits, they may be willing, but we're weak. And if in the moment that desire of the flesh is stronger, that's what we will, that's what we'll do. We'll act upon it. It'll be sin. We have the promise that as we confess our sins to God, as we speak the same word as God about our sins, that it is sinful and we shouldn't have done it. God is faithful. He is just. And by the blood of Jesus, His Son, He continues to forgive us. In fact, I, I like to think of it this way, that it, it may be a sin that you have been struggling with for a long time. And even though you may be new to this Christian walk, listen, it, 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 um, we learn to sin less, but the battle continues. And it will continue on until... You die or Jesus comes back, whichever comes first. And so you may struggle with this sin for a long time. And hopefully it gets less and less, but just knowing as a Christian and talking to other Christians, the battle, the struggle is real. And you may get to a point where you're going, ah, in prayer you're, you're confessing, oh God, I did it again and, and I don't want to do it. And, and, and I, I gave in to temptation, and I, why do I keep doing this, God? Why? And, and you ought to have that. That's a good thing. That demonstrates your conscience is still tender to the promptings of God. And here's the beauty of the Gospel. See, because of what Christ did, even though this may be, I don't know, the, the 4,337th time you've talked to God about this thing, and you confess your sins, and you confess this particular sin again, God basically says to you, I don't think we've talked about this before. Forgiven, keep walking with me. Best news these sinful have ever heard. Keep walking with me. Keep being led by the Spirit. Keep looking for the way of escape when tempted. Keep walking with Him. He doesn't cast us off. You see, you don't need the Holy Spirit if you're just going to 
lead a semi-normal life and, and just be somewhere every Sunday. Millions of people do that every football season. They live a semi-normal life and then they're somewhere on Sunday. Maybe in front of their couch, maybe tailgating at the stadium. You don't need the Spirit to do that. You also don't even need the Spirit if you're going to lead a, a semi-normal life and then just show up at church on a Sunday. There are some people that do that even. Lead the semi-normal life and then just show up and warm a pew on Sunday. But if you want to please God with your life, you need the Holy Spirit for that. If you want to overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil, you need the Holy Spirit for that. If you want to identify sin and, and avoid sin in your life, you need the Holy Spirit for that. If you want to live a godly life and live in a godly way, you need the Holy Spirit for that. If you want to follow Jesus like we talked about last in the last lesson, and if you want to obey Him in everything, you need the Holy Spirit for that. If you want to teach others to do the same, you, you do need the Holy Spirit for that. You need the Holy Spirit for all of that. And so, my brother, my sister, that is why God has given us His Holy Spirit. Let's commit this to prayer. Lord God, we acknowledge that You have given us Your Holy Spirit, but we pray that You would fill us with the Spirit so that we would be filled with the Spirit day by day. And that we would live for You every day and in every way. Lord God, bless the one who is watching this right now. Bless them so that they can be led by the Spirit in their life. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen.